to the Creative Process Podcast, a discussion with artists about what goes on behind the scenes when they're creating their work. I'm your host, Dave Hopper. On today's episode, I speak with Krista Blackwood, a photo, text, and installation artist working with themes related to identity, history, and popular culture. Her dreamlike sequences and texts employ multiple techniques and methods, fusing traditional, historical, and alternative processes with iPhone image making and street installations. Her work has been featured in several publications, including the New York Times, New York Newsday, The Village Voice, and the Chicago Sun-Times. She has exhibited in galleries and museums throughout the U.S. and abroad. She was recommended by our last guest, photographer Jennifer McClure. Krista, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So our last guest, Jennifer McClure, was the one that recommended you. Uh, have you seen her work before? Yes. Um, Jennifer and I met at a photo review in New Orleans, and I'm a big fan of her work, um, particularly the series You Who Never Arrived, where she restages yeah. parts of her uh, <laughs> broken relationships in hotel rooms. I thought that was so brave. You know? Yes, it is And brave. also sort of, yeah, just beautifully executed, too, and just so brave. I was really yeah. very impressed. Like, Those photo reviews are always that. interesting, too, huh? They are. You meet, um, you know, you meet reviewers. I think uh, a lot of it's about the camaraderie, the people, the, the fellow photographers that you meet, you know, make it interesting. Yeah. So you're... People Where like does your work. creative process start? You do so many different things and use old cameras and different processes. So is there one place where your creative process starts for each or is it different for everything? I think most of the time it's film-based. Um, I do do a few things with my iPhone now because it's so readily available all the <laughs> time. Um, <laughs> I started... Uh, Taking pictures when I was 12, I took my first darkroom class, uh, you know, black and white, 35 millimeter film with my dad's camera, and um, I went back uh, to still film when I was in college at NYU. I got a job as a photographer for the art history department, so I made all the slides for the lectures, and uh, we shot slide film, and I got back into photography that way through a job, and I was able to go to NYU. Uh, for free because they offered tuition remission and so that was great so I worked at NYU for about seven years and I went to graduate school and I would take a class here or there and um, finally got a degree I didn't want to get a degree because <laughs> once you applied for the degree yeah I had to apply for like a doctoral program and I wasn't sure like if I wanted to do that or not so I, I had took many many classes you know, to just get to put it off a bit master's degree yeah exactly I'm like I'm not gonna file <laughs> continue taking whatever I like. So it worked out well. Did New York affect your process at all, do you think? Oh, I think completely. Um, when I came to New York, you know, we were, it was in the midst of an AIDS epidemic, and there was and the city was uh, financially in a downturn. There were lots of empty spaces, so lots of sort of renegade spaces and lots of street art and um a lot of sort of, you know, do-it-yourself type of things, which was really wonderful. And also, I lived in lower Manhattan, and my first exposure to the gallery world was to these big, fancy galleries with, you know, people that made big, you know, impressive work and really conceptual work, like Cindy Sherman or Serrano or, you know, Starn Twins. So, um I think it had a huge impact on me because I always want to make something, you know, big and bold and mm -hmm. 
striking and not, you know, something that's a regular 8x10 or 11x14 <laughs> format. And I think it's based because I was, I was weaned on the, being the big guys first. And New York was a lot different than, than it is now with the cost of living and the artists aren't, a lot of artists don't live there anymore. They're in Brooklyn or they're even having to leave there now. It's like a different culture. It's crazy. It's sort of, I used to live in uh, Chelsea. I lived in Chelsea for a couple of years in the Chelsea Hotel. And I lived in a basement apartment on Mountain Broom for seven years and in a loft on Lafayette. But I couldn't afford to live there now. Um, <laughs> I had a studio with my ex-husband in Williamsburg that was an empty loft. And I don't think we could even afford to have that now because Williamsburg is so yeah. pricey. Yeah, so I think... I think it's hard to be an artist in New York because you just work so hard to survive financially. Um, and especially with the internet now, you don't have to be in the same spot, I guess, as much as you used to. That's true. It's so it's so much easier to uh, get your ideas out there, um, at least in you know on the screen. You still have to talk to people to get your work out there, after all. Yes, <laughs> and it's nice. Like when you go to those reviews, you meet people and you see you know actual physical prints which is nice instead of uh just the screen screen view but i have to tell you the screen views often look better than the prints because they have all that beautiful backlight on them, <laughs> you know? so, so often i'm thinking why are we making prints everything looks better you know backlit <laughs> put a light behind this before you look at it <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is something about feeling it in your hands though that's still special it's true, and I think that's why I like these uh, antiquated or alternative processes because it is um, so tactile. I think it's it's really fun for me. It's uh, and it's not as you know, photography has a lot of rules. Conventional photography and darkroom photography, and when you bring it out into the light and you start some of these other processes where you actually put paint or pigment on paper, you know, it changes it a lot. It frees it up for me. I like I like that. So you're not really into the whole digital camera revolution? I don't. The only digital camera that I have is my iPhone. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I've, I've used some great digital cameras, but I don't own one. And I think some of the lighter weight ones that are mirrorless look great. Um, I have one of those for, little, like, a travel camera, a little Fuji, and they're amazing. Yeah, I think those are great. I think they're big, bulky DSLRs. I, I, I don't know, the weight distribution and the, Lenses are so long. I like, I have a 4x5 and a medium format, like a Rolly, and I prefer those cameras. Um, but it's more work, you know, it costs more, more time. Mm -hmm. But I think there is something about the emulsion of the film. It, it does look different. And when you make a print with a digital image or a silver print, if, once you frame them or, you know, put them behind glass, it's often hard to tell, you know, yeah. which, which, what process was used. But, but if, you know, they're just laying on the table, I can I can usually tell right away. Because the, the old processes, are, you know, the, the paper's actually etched. There's a physicality to it, um, not just laying an ink on top of the surface. It's kind of like um, vinyl records versus MP3s or even CDs. Exactly. That's a, that's a really great uh, analogy, great comparison. I didn't think about that. There's nothing but like there holding a, yeah, the vinyl Yeah, there is like a hand. richness. Yeah, the, yeah, and there's a fidelity to those vinyl mm -hmm. albums that, yeah. So when did you first get interested in these antique cameras, if I can call them that? Uh, I, a friend of mine, I worked at NYU uh, as a company photographer, and my predecessor, 
got his master's degree and he moved. He was from, I grew up in Oklahoma and he was from Oklahoma too. And he was, you know, recommended me for this post. And he um, had a four by five. He stayed in my apartment for a couple months. And in lieu of giving me money, he gave me this old four by five camera. So I sort of inherited his camera when I was in my 20s, you know. Um, I guess when I, you know, got back into film, I was. I was working in the department, and I started taking some art classes and photography classes. And since then, I've dabbled in lots of uh, alternative processes. I like to do screen printing. Um, I like to do photo gravure or photo etching, which is kind of a hybrid between printmaking with a big, you know, printing press with a big captain's mm-hmm. wheel and photography. I like combining the, you know photo image, but being able to mix ink and make different colors and, you know, it changes the way it looks tremendously instead of just making it black and white prints or, or color print. It's kind of a hybrid type of process. And this is a, it's a much slower way of working than most people are used to these days. It is. It is. So um, my work is so sort of conceptually based. Um, I don't run out and take the camera and shoot 200 shots or 2,000 shots. I usually have an <laughs> idea in my head, and then I try and, you know, create something visually that will be striking, that will make people, you know, think about the things that I'm thinking about or addressing. But, yeah, it might take six months or something you know, to finish one image sometimes. But I don't work just on one at a time. You know, right. I usually work on it. But, but my theories are usually not... 20 or you know a book of 40 images or 100 it's usually i get an idea and i make about you know 10 to 15 pieces maybe 20 at the most um but often just 10 and then i feel like the idea i've worked through it like i don't need to make any more <laughs> so they <laughs> feel complete the at that point they do to me like this is enough like 10 is enough because it takes you know maybe a year or two just to make those 10 to shoot everything with the old cameras and then figure out how I want to present it. And usually the, my presentations, uh, are, you know, large or medium size. I go from four by five film to like 20 by 24 images. Um, the prints are pretty big. They're larger than a little portfolio box or something. So you really have to like an idea to have to spend that much time on it. <laughs> I do. I'm really pretty passionate about, uh, yeah, these ideas. So. so it's not a lot of um, culling down, I would guess. Like a lot of projects, photographers or whatever, will shoot a ton of stuff, and they have to cull it down to an acceptable amount for a gallery show or a portfolio or something like that. And mm-hmm. this seems like this is what I have and this is what it is. It seems it could be easier, but it could also be harder because you have less images to pick from. That's true. Like, well, I, like right now I'm doing um, figure in a landscape or nude portraiture, but I'm using all young male models and mm-hmm. uh, I'll go out and shoot with the four by five. And I think I probably shot about 200 pieces of film and of the 200 I made 10 prints so it's not it's not unlike um maybe old school silver you know photography mm-hmm. but it's very different from digital where you would go out and shoot 200 in a day you know <laughs> um <laughs> so I do edit but often you know I'll my editing process because of the 
idea and the models that I work with, I might shoot, you know, five to ten shots with one model and get one image that I like. That's a pretty good rate. Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> but it's it's so much slower with a big camera. You know, you have, you have to set up everything and you have yeah. to look. And it just takes a few minutes to do one shot. Yeah. What do you tell the models that you're working with? Because I assume they haven't worked this way before. They haven't. I, you know, I tell them it's very slow and I talk ex- about exactly what I'm trying to, to do and I show them photo books and I talk about how um, people are represented in photography and particularly women and usually if it's if it's a figure in the landscape image it's typically a young woman mm-hmm. um, slim proportions idealized woman that's codified as pretty and young and and uh, visually at least it's mm-hmm. you know it suggested that way and I tell them you know this is, we're replicating that with men and I'm, I picked you because you you have these attributes and uh you are sort of like eye candy so the, <laughs> the male version of this female and they get it you know there's young guys and they're you know their minds are like sponges and <laughs> they get it and some of them you know just are really into it and very very comfortable with their bodies and most of the most of the pictures are not very explicit you know yeah. they may just be topless or something or they may be you know replicating something like leaning on a tree or, you know, some famous image, but another photographer like Weston or Stieglitz or, um, you know, someone else has taken. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I let them pick a lot of the images. I have all these books and I said, you know, what would you like to, what position, you know, what shot would you like to replicate? Because some of the shots, the positions that they put the female models in are really difficult to do. <laughs> you look at them and you're like, oh my, how did you do that? like sit there gracefully in this contorted, you know, position on a face planted in the sand or, you know. <laughs> yes, those are those are interesting. It's one thing if it's a self <laughs> it's a self portrait, that's one thing. If it's telling someone else to do that, that's another thing. Completely. And I think I think no one really thinks about that. You know, you have to really carefully look at an image and think that's really an awkward, uncomfortable, you know, position to be in as a model. Sometimes I'll <laughs> I'll tell um, a model, the guy that I was working with in Aspen, I was the resident at Anderson Ranch last fall, and I would say, let's I'd show him a picture. And he looked at me like, are you crazy? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Laying upside down in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Dangling on the edge of a cliff, all that good stuff. Exactly. <laughs> he's a very fit, uh, active, strong you know, bicycle rider. He can... You can do about everything, but some of these poses are just so odd, and they make them look so, you know, graceful. Yeah. Well, that's one thing about photography and working with someone and telling them, especially if they're not used to being in front of the camera, telling them that sometimes things feel weird when you're doing them, but they actually look natural on the camera. It's kind of mm-hmm. an odd process. That's, that's true. It's true. If you look at fashion magazines, and we see the same type of imagery all the time, so I think we forget or we become desensitized so this is the same type of woman i've been seeing for 50 years so this is you know ridiculous pose how does she sit <laughs> that way or you know lay that way yeah the process is slow and you're out in i don't know i wouldn't say public but it's it is public but it's not like in the city or anything so that's true i do yeah i haven't last fall when i was working um in colorado and utah we would be in, in public parks often, um, so we would have to make certain there were, you know, people walking around, have to have some privacy. Um, 
sometimes a couple of times there'd be like families not far from us on the trail and <laughs> the model my dark cloth so he could wrap up you know and not shock the young family and their toddlers <laughs> this isn't the same kind of park i thought it was i know <laughs> it's a nudist park how did you find um, the places for these landscape type photos well, I was looking for it. I really love um, some of the old, beautiful shots of the West and Western expansion. Um, and I looked at old photography books and things that were, you know, documents that were 100 or 150 years old. And I went back to places like Arches and Moab, beautiful uh, rock formations, and uh, photographed my model in the landscape in Colorado uh, around Independence Pass and you know, in the in the mountains. So I would do research. And at Anderson Ranch, they have a photo department, and they do workshops in the summer, and they you know, they have people come in to do sort of um, nature, beautiful landscape shots, like you would see in National Geographic or something. Mm-hmm. So they actually had um, they had some suggestions for me of where to go, where they had taken class classes, you know, for mm-hmm. beautiful landscape pictures. And then I use I research a lot. I go. I'm fortunate to be in Austin, and I have the Harry Ransom Center, and um, I can go in and, you know, do a search, and they'll pull original photographs for me to look at, um, so I've done that a lot, and I've done research at ICP in New York, you know, looking at books and mm-hmm. taking pictures of things that I've seen in books to try and uh, replicate or, or give that sort of idea or sensibility, so I do a lot of research by looking at books and, or looking at images online. And you bring the models out with you, and how long of a day is that usually? It can be pretty long because we want to start, we want to get good light. Um, so we usually start pretty early in the morning and work from, it depends yeah. upon the time of year, but maybe, you know, 7 or 8 in the morning till 10 or 11. And then the light gets too harsh mm-hmm. most of the time from about 11 to 5, it depends, or maybe 4. So we usually work for a few hours and then take a break, go eat, and then go back out. So there's two sort of sections of the day where we have this about a three-hour window of shooting. Yeah, good light um, is but, never convenient. <laughs> no, it's not. And sometimes it's not there. It's cloudy. Or, you know, yeah. Or, yeah it's, it's not optimal. So, But I've taken uh, one of the models that I worked with here to the beach in Texas. We've gone down there three times to shoot to try and replicate um, Edward Weston's shots that he did of Karis in the sand dunes in California. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to be able to, like, fly out to where he, you know, <laughs> took the shots, but it's just too expensive. And, you know, the scenery has changed a lot in some of those places. So there yeah. might be apartments or, you know, businesses there now. So, And the beach is never a bad place to be. It's great, but the beach in Texas, because of the trade winds, is really kind of a trashy beach. So we've <laughs> gone down there. We, we went all over Padre Island National Seashore, and we couldn't find, like, a pristine spot. We found this one location that we keep going back to that's not very far from Corpus Christi, like this one sand dune where we drive <laughs> to the ninth mile marker, and then we go back in the dunes, and it's pretty private. You, you would have to take another, like, SUV or something to see us but we've had people like that are <laughs> touring around like hey what's going, what are you doing yeah. and they tell their friends and you know we have to shut down for a while because we 
drawing attention to ourselves, even though we're trying not to. You know? so, yeah. Usually it's teenagers or something. It, it kind of ruins the moment of the shoot. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's really it interesting. Does. You can do all the research and then you just sometimes just have to stumble upon or keep searching the place that actually works. Completely. And the model that I was working with in Colorado, he was traveling around. He was actually a young banker from New York, but he loves he did some outward bound stuff when he was a teenager in, in college and he was leaving his banking career. He was twenty four going on twenty five and traveling across the states. He lost some money gambling in the oh, Indian casinos in New Mexico <laughs> and he saw my ad on Craigslist and uh, he sent me a text and he was articulate he was like semicolons you know he was such a stellar guy uh so we worked together for a few weeks uh last fall and he found a couple of locations because he knew you know the area so well Mm -hmm. from doing tours and one was in the middle of a lake on a mountain pass at about eleven thousand feet wow and we were able to shoot there a week or two before the pass closed for the season Mm -hmm. like he was in the water I was in the water. Um, I was up to waist high water, and I have a big tripod, and the tripod was in the water, and you know the camera was mounted above the water about a foot. So, and he climbed up in a tree that happened to be in the lake. So that was really exciting, and um, we did it during the middle of the week in early October. So there weren't a lot of tourists around, right. you know. Yeah, but there could have been, you know, it could have been someone could have been fishing or something out there. But. <laughs> Well, that is great when you work with someone. Like when you're shooting someone else, at first you're not sure what they're comfortable with or what they'll do to get the shot because as a photographer, you're like, oh, I have to get this shot and we have to do it this way. Or you see something in your head and you get all excited about it. Then you have to wonder, is the other person on the same page? I know, completely. And luckily, yeah, amiable and so comfortable here just around nude most of the time some of the models are just comfortable in their own skin yeah they don't need a robe or a towel or anything they'll just be standing around and wait for you to give them direction and and others are you know more shy or um you know not so comfortable at that i have had the i shot um some boudoir whatever you want to call it on a mountainside Mm -hmm. just to try it and i was like the model was so carefree about you know being in underwear and i'm like oh god we're gonna get caught (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably totally different than i expected but i was like oh god, oh god there's people around see that would be another great series <laughs> like the yeah. cops coming in yeah. <laughs> i have seen videos of photographers getting in trouble but there could oh, be yeah. a whole series about that uh, i would love to see that how did you find that uh i did just you see that on the web or something the internet um, I think it was uh, certain photographers. Uh, he did a DVD. I think it was Zach Arias, and he's shooting in a, <laughs> a parking garage, and the security showed up. <laughs> oh, and like, uh, you can't shoot here. <laughs> Usually, they just you know you just get yelled at and leave. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, there have you been some ask. unfortunate. You just, yeah, yeah. You never ask. You just do it. Yeah. Oh, this no, isn't public? Get... Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. You feign <laughs> ignorance to get the shot. <laughs> have you ever had anything close like that happen? No, I haven't. I mean, I have shot stuff where they're, they've come out and they've run out and said, what are you doing? You, know, you have to get a, a permit. And I have, you know, I've had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and at White Sands, New Mexico, like I didn't have permission to 
use a tripod. Um, that is always weird so to I had me. To, Mm-hmm. The no so tri- to... Like in New York City, you can't have a tripod or something without a permit. It seems odd. Oh, really? You can't use a tripod on the street? Hmm. I've heard that. I didn't know that. When I was there, I, used, I remember doing some, some photography with the, my 4x5 on the street. But, you know, that was in the early 90s. So yeah, different time. And it was also still on the Lower East Side at night. So I don't know if anyone cared. No one was around. I wasn't blocking the street or the sidewalk. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't gotten into most of the time, uh, two or three times that that I've just been told, no, you can't do that. Or you need a permit or, you know, it costs $2,000. Some of these idyllic locations, um, they, they want to charge a fee and they get a lot of people that are shooting wedding, you know, shots Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all about making a buck usually. (laughs) Um, always. Yeah. (laughs) Have people given you uh, any good reactions when they see you not shooting with a Canon DSLR or whatever and shooting with a camera they haven't seen before? They do, yeah. I was shooting at Maroon Bells or um, when I was shooting on the beach. They have they pretty much have no idea usually what, <laughs> what I'm doing or why I'm underneath a black cloth. <laughs> this weird black box and it's... it's confusing and intriguing and they usually approach me and then they'll see the model and like oh what kind of camera is that you know i'll show yeah. them the viewfinder and and uh, they, they're pretty curious they don't know what's going on <laughs> how do you transport that kind of camera usually i just have it in my car i drove you know i hit the road i uh, live in austin and i've gone to you know different places within the state to big bend out west and to the beach and I drove all my equipment to Colorado, and I shot um, in the sand dunes in southern Colorado and in the mountains around Aspen. And then I went, I was based outside of Aspen in Snowmass, and I drove up to Moab, Utah a few times. And uh, the scenery out there is just stunning. I think yeah, it's something that spectacular. Yeah, I'd never been out there before until last fall. Just maybe, This is the most spectacular western landscape that I've seen. But I haven't been to um, Green Canyon. There's lots of places I haven't been. I'd like to go to Bryce Canyon. Yeah, the West is always, the landscapes always bring you back. And there's always so much Mm -hmm. to see. And it's so far apart. It's not like over in the East where you can get to a lot of places in a couple hours. That's true. Yeah, these places are far apart. Like for me to drive to Big Bend is about an eight-hour drive to get out there. Texas is a big state. Yeah, very Um, big. And to get to the beach, it's about... You know, at least three and a half hours, four hours. When I first moved, I lived in New York, and when I moved to Austin, I wanted to go to the beach, so I drove down to the beach, and it took about three and a half or four hours. And I thought, I could hop on a subway in Manhattan and go out. (laughs) (laughs) I could be at Coney Island in 45 minutes. Exactly. exactly. And the beach is actually kind of nicer in Coney Island. (laughs) (laughs) Or Jones. Beach, you know, yeah, like even Long Island, you got the whole island, mm-hmm. plenty of big beaches. Montauk, uh, beautiful Montauk is like three hours, two, two or three hours away. What ideas do you have now that you're going to start working on or that you're currently working on? Well, I've been working with um, some models and we have been looking at uh, the Western Ar- Archive and reading about a couple of Weston's models, uh, Karis Wilson and Tina Modati and uh, reading their biographies, autobiographies, and uh, having the young men 
portray them. And so I've been shooting that with 4 by 5 and making platinum and palladium prints, making big, bigger digital negatives that I print on uh, vellum, which is, you know, sort of a translucent paper. I've been gold leafing the back. So they look sort of like little stained glass pieces with these these nudes. Um, when I was printing the the platinum and palladium prints yesterday, I've been working on that, this printing method um, since maybe March or something. So I have, hope to have, you know, about 10 or 12 of these done by December. I have about six right now and I'm still shooting. Um, I have a new model, Blake, and he's an uh, actor and he has big, beautiful, like expressive eyes and uh, mm-hmm. sort of an androgynous face. And he's a very smart young guy. So he's really into it. He's reading all the books with me and, <laughs> you know, we're collaborating on shots. And so it's really fun because he's, he's into the idea. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. It's working out well. So I'm trying to figure out uh, how I'm going to present some of these two, like which methods I might do some like salt prints or, um, prints that go back, you know, but prints that were made maybe typically 150 years ago to have them look, uh, you know, like they're relics or old um, documents or something. Was this something that would be in a gallery when you present it? Yes. I'm having a show um, of all the the figure and the landscape pieces in Houston in um, next month. So I have 10 big prints from... Colorado and Utah that I shot that are I print I, I shot it all with my four by five camera with black and white film but I scanned all of the images and I've made big digital prints because I can't print that large forty <laughs> and then I'm making some of the smaller pieces too that are and glass um, then make something smaller and more affordable too because i know in my house like i don't have room to put up a 40 by 50 print (laughs) yeah not many people do Uh, exactly some do but not many (laughs) (laughs) and if any of those people are listening krista would like to hear from you (laughs) i'm interested i'd like to do make posters and do public art so i'd like to see some of the images maybe like on a billboard or a bus or something like Mm -hmm. that you know um and I make posters, and sometimes I have the models come when I have an opening, and, and they'll sign the posters, and we'll just give them away. You know, it's like a giveaway yeah. for the gallery shows. So That's great. Um, yeah, just to sort of spread the idea and offer something, you know, for That's free. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. That went by quickly. Oh, no, thank you. I'm, it's a pleasure. And my last question yeah, is, who do you think I should talk to next? Whose creative process do you wonder about? Well, I um, am pretty intrigued by Zora Murph's work. Uh, he's a professor, a young professor in Nebraska, and he grew up in the Midwest. Um, and he worked as a liaison in the juvenile justice system between uh, social workers and the youths that were um, arrested uh, you know, just to someone that would go in and check up on them. Mm-hmm. And he did that for a couple of years. And so he, he's it's a really intimate portrayal of the juvenile justice system. And you see these young, you know, kids 
white, black, male, female. And mm-hmm. some of them are, you know, a lot of them are like 13 or 15 years old and they look like they're an egg grave or something sometimes. But, you know, they're, <laughs> yeah. they have collars on their ankles. And uh, so he, it's, I think it's pretty fascinating to explore that, how our society, uh, the justice system and the prison system dealing with youth. Um, Great. Well, thanks for that recommendation. Sure. I think I saw his show in uh, Denver last month, and I thought the images were really compelling, and I bought the book. It was published by Ain't Bad, so I would check his work out. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Okay. Well, thanks. thank you. I look forward to uh, how this turns out. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. That was Krista Blackwood, photographer, text, and installation artist. Thank you for listening to the Creative Process Podcast. I'm Dave Hopper. This has been a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. The music is Big Screen by Silent Partner. Join me next time as I speak with photographer Zora Murph.